This is Africa Digest. A very good evening and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa and on frequency 9625 kilohertz in the 31 meter band to Southern Africa this hour. We are also on channel 902 in the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumelele Zondi and I'm with Asanda Mataonyane. We're sending Matebula on economics and Figile Lingwati on sports. Let's take a look at the top stories on 1700 hours Central African Time right on Africa Digest. Burundi's newly elected parliament sits for the first time. The Board of Healthcare Funders Conference is underway in South Africa. In economics, a power cuts in northwestern Zambia affects production at first quantum minerals and a barrack gold. And in sport, the club versus country saga refuses to go away in South African football. Let's get the news from Masanda Matonyane first. Good evening. Police in Bangladesh have arrested eight suspected militants, including the chief of the outlawed Jamaat ul Mujahideen group. This as authorities step up a crackdown on hardline Islamists. Bangladesh, a Muslim-majority nation of 160 million people, targeted the militants after machete-wielding attackers hacked to death three online critics and three-line online critics of religious extremism, including an American blogger. Vusingosi reports. Police have also seized explosives and other bomb-making materials during overnight raids on the militants' hideouts in the capital. Monerul Islam, a commissioner of Dhaka police, says the arrested members were plotting to kill important personalities of the state and free their leaders from jail. Bangladesh security forces this month arrested 12 suspected militants which claimed responsibility for a string of attacks in Bangladesh and Pakistan. Coming to the continent, Lesotho Prime Minister Pakalita Musisidi has appointed the country's former IEC commissioner, Dr. Fako Likoti, as political advisor. Likoti made headlines when his IEC contract was not renewed during former Prime Minister Tom Tabane's tenure. A former policeman, Likoti carved his career in political science and security studies. Ntagwa Nangatani reports. Advisory in the office of Lesotho Prime Minister seems to have high mobility. Tom Tabani had more than two in the space of two years. The incumbent, Bagadita Musisidi, recently announced he didn't need the controversial Gupta family as advisors and would withdraw their diplomatic passports issued by Tabani. Now Dr. Dikoti is facing the mammoth task of keeping the seven-party alliance alive and he moves in on the 1st of August. A Libyan court has sentenced slain longtime leader Muammar Gaddafi's son and eight other defendants to death. Saif al-Islam Gaddafi and the others were sentenced to death on Tuesday for crimes during the 2011 uprising. Former Intelligence Chief Abdullah Senussi and Gaddafi's last Prime Minister al-Baghdadi al-Mahmoudi are also among those sentenced to death. The trial, which opened in the Libyan capital Tripoli in April last year, has been dogged by criticism from human rights watchdogs and an unresolved dispute with the International Criminal Court in The Hague over jurisdiction in Saif al-Islam's case. 
In the increasing humanitarian crisis in Africa, the High Court in Pretoria, South Africa, has ordered that orphaned refugee children be processed as dependents on the asylum seeker application of their guardians. There is currently no provision in South Africa's immigration laws to deal with such children. Lawyers for Human Rights, David Koite. They often um, are separated from their parents during their flight, and so they're taken care of by other people. But once they arrived in South Africa, the um, Department of Home Affairs was refusing to put them on the same asylum permits, which meant that many times children would go undocumented as um, they were supposed to go through a children's court process, which is long and onerous. Uh, What this judgment now does is says that they can be permitted in the meantime, but that doesn't prevent the Department of Social Development, for example, from conducting an investigation. And finally in business, Britain has vowed to clamp down on the use of dirty money to buy up expensive properties, promising to expose the owners of anonymous foreign shell companies hiding cash in London's buoyant housing market. Prime Minister David Cameron, speaking in Singapore on a regional trade visit, said the promise was part of anti-corruption efforts to ensure that Britain did not become a haven for corrupt money. Billions of US dollars of property in England and Wales is owned via offshore companies. Cameron has announced that a central registry of land and properties owned by foreign firms will be set up in the coming months. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Matzaunyani. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Thank you very much, Asanda. It's 17.05 Central African time. Nigeria's new president, Muhammadu Buhari, is expected in Cameroon tomorrow to discuss how to tackle the Boko Haram insurgency and piracy in the Gulf of Guinea with his Cameroonian counterpart, Paul Bia. The two neighbors have a long history of security challenges. Moki Kinzaga reports on what is expected from the visit, coming at a time when suicide bombings have extended from Nigeria to its neighbors, such as Cameroon. Businessman Eric Odos from Nigeria's Imo State has been in Cameroon for 25 years. The 50-year-old advisor to the Union of Nigerians living in Cameroon says what they want is peace. His Excellency President Buhari, the one we are expecting is to join her with the president of this country, His Excellency Pobia with the foreign president to fight against Bukhara. When you look around, the economy of the country is so down because of insecurity. It affects everybody, be the national, be the foreigners. There are over 3 million Nigerians living in Cameroon. They have been joined by 80,000 refugees fleeing the Boko Haram insurgency. Ntuda Ebode, a geopolitical scientist, says among those seeking refuge are Boko Haram suspects. He says Bia and Buhari should agree on a hot pursuit. La coalition permet au Nigeria de traiter à l'intérieur du Nigeria. He says Nigeria should negotiate a coalition to pursue suspects right into its neighbor's territories because Boko Haram fighters seek refuge in foreign lands when they are wanted in Nigeria. Au Nigeria, peut-être de négocier quelque chose, au moins de rétablir la paix sur son territoire. Ntuda says Cameroon and Nigeria should also agree to stop international funding of Boko Haram. Depuis longtemps, on sait que Boko Haram reçoit des financements d'un certain nombre. He says Boko Haram has funding from countries 
has allies in other countries and has been seizing war weapons from regular armies. He says since its creation, Boko Haram has had enough time to gather enough financial, human, material and relational capital. Cameroon shares 2,100 kilometer border with Nigeria, spanning across mountains and deserts in the north, dense forests in the south, and 21 border points in the ocean. Bloody conflicts made the International Court of Justice order the demarcation of the Cameroon-Nigeria border and the oil-rich Bakasi Peninsula was handed to Cameroon. Professor Tazuacha Asongani says Bia and Buhari are likely to discuss dissenting voices from disgruntled Nigerians who want Bakasi back. There is a group pushing for Nigeria to take back Bakasi or at least reopen the negotiations. But since he was president and since his troops were in Bakasi, a lot of water has gone under the bridge. His presidency is a continuity of the presidencies that have been since he left power as a military head of state. The two presidents are also to discuss piracy in the Gulf of Guinea. The Cameroon-based International Center Against Piracy in the Gulf of Guinea reports that Cameroon and Nigeria loses between 40,000 and 100,000 barrels per day due to theft, and business and investments have been slowed in the Gulf because of regular armed conflict. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. Let's go to Burundi now, where the newly elected parliament in the country is in its first ordinary session, due to wind up on Friday, July 31. Although opposition coalition hopeful Burundians had declared not to recognize the outcomes of the recent presidential and parliamentary elections in that country, a part of the coalition attended the opening session of, on this Monday, including the leader Agathon Rwasa, along with 18 other elect members from the coalition, creating confusion among the public, especially his followers. Bernard Bankokira reports from Puchumbura. When the first parliamentary session was announced, all eyes were on the opposition coalition hope for Burundians to see whether Agaton Gwasa and his men and women will attend the session or not, as they had rejected the elections organized on June 29th and July 21st. Surprisingly, Agaton Gwasa, the leader of the coalition Hope for Burundians, attended the parliament session with 18 others from Hope coalitions. He says that they have taken the decision to respond to the trust of the people who voted for them. 30 seats have been allotted for the coalition. As an opinion thinks Agaton Gwasa has betrayed his counterparts of the coalition, he says it's an emotional feeling that will soon change with time. I'm not letting down anybody. And perhaps... This is a judgment which comes from just emotional feelings. Let them take some few times, some few days. They will come to a conclusion that they are not betrayed. Acton Gwasa recognizes that the recent presidential and parliamentary elections were not held in respect of the recommendations of the international community. As a government of unity has been recommended, Mr. Gwasa doesn't openly recognize to take part in the government. But for him, taking part in the parliament will offer him ground for discussions in the dialogue which, according to him, must continue. You know, this issue of government is not yet there on the agenda. Because when we, are, we have to form the government, we have to, to just consider what is uh, mentioned in the, in the Constitution. And uh, if I look on how this parliament is set, 
I think there is a need to have a deep dialogue between the parties so that we can be able to form a government. Otherwise, we may have just a monoparty government, which is not acceptable with our constitution. The coalition, along with other opposition parties, announced their withdrawal from the race, alleging the environment was not permissive for a free, fair and credible electoral process. His followers have conflicting views. Some are happy with his decision, while others got confused, alleging they were not aware of that. People of Unyandrake, especially members of UFN, they were surprised yesterday because they didn't know about him to attend the assembly. But afternoon, when he spoke, about his decision, they were happy. Some of them, they come to me as they try to show to show me that they are happy. I think now everything is okay and very well. Our friends, members are happy. I'm not feeling okay because we were not informed about this decision. We just heard about it on the radio that he dated the, the, the parliament. The citizens are not well informed about this decision. Myself and according to the views of the members of the party, they would like him not to to, to attend this, I mean, this session of the parliament be, uh, well, without informing the, I mean, the, the members of the party. He will not inform them. They do not know what motivated him to, to, to join the parliament. We are still waiting for him. Maybe we will finally be informed about what motivated him to take this decision and they will know what to do. I would like to, to advise him not to forget about what happened. Himself, he remembers that he didn't vote. And he didn't I mean, advise his members to go to vote. Uh, but now he is attending these parliament sessions. And uh, we have this, uh, I mean, this opposition which is saying that the, the, the elections were not fair. We as the members of the opposition, we are still waiting for the election. The coalition Hope for Burundians was formed a few days before the elections. It's made up of two unrecognized radical wings, the Tutsi-dominated wing of the Rupona Party and the Hutu-dominated wing of the FNL, in a bid to vie for seats and confront the ruling party CNDD-FDD. Charles Nitije and his turn men from the Yupona party within the coalition did not attend the session as they say they still not recognize the election results. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankokira reporting from Bojumbura. And the time is 17.14 Central African time right here on Africa Digest. On Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And remember that you can also find us online. We're on www.channelafrica.co.za. That's www.channelafrica.co.za. You can also find us on Channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The number of people out of work in South Africa is expected to have increased in the second quarter because of the fragile economic growth and weakened business confidence. Economists expect unemployment to have increased by 0.2% to 26.6%. Demagaso Lishuru reports for us. South Africa's unemployment rate increased to 26.4% in the first quarter of 2015. This was said to be the worst reading since 2003, even though around 240,000 new jobs have been created for young people in the last 12 months, according to Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa. In his written reply to a parliamentary question, it would not have been enough to reduce huge levels of joblessness in the country. Isaac Machejo is an economist at NetBank. We don't really expect an improvement on the jobs 
front because when you look at uh, indicators of real economic activity, I mean, at best, this economy is moving sideways, and that is not an environment which is um, conducive to high job creation. And now major mining companies, including Longmin and Anglo-American, last week announced plans to cut thousands of jobs. Industrial sectors of the economy that are also mass employers have been faced with challenges, chief among them being the low commodity prices, reduced demand and insufficient power supply. The Department of Public Enterprises said earlier in the year that ESCOM's load shedding was costing the economy about 80 billion rand a month. Once we get a slowdown in the mining sector, you know, we are likely to get a hit in other sectors. For instance, when you look at manufacturing, you could look at construction. So the interlinkages in the economy are likely to result in a slowdown. This is not good news for the likes of 27-year-old Sibusiso Lamini from Zimkuli in KwaZulu-Natal. He has been in Johannesburg for six years looking for jobs in bricklaying and painting. We are just sitting here. We do not have jobs, so we are trying to get something to eat. Some people who give us peace jobs are robbing us. They do not want to pay us the money we agree on. We have left families back home. We cannot support them. The money we make is just not enough. The outlook for job seekers such as Sibusiso do not look promising. Dr. Elna Mulman is an economist at Macquarie Securities. We think it will be quite a while before we'll see meaningful, positive growth in employment. So at least for the remainder of this year and possibly also next year until we've resolved the electricity crisis and hopefully get a bit more clarity on the global economic outlook. We think that the best case scenario is that net employment will trend sideways. said there's a need for a change of economic policy that will be conducive to job creation. We've got the industrial policy action plan in place. Also on the supply side, I mean, there's a big concern about the inflexibility or the perceived inflexibility of the labor market in South Africa. And these are issues that need to be addressed to make sure that, you know, uh, there is clear coordination of policies, both relating to labor, to the macroeconomic environment, the growth policy, and all that. In Johannesburg, I'm Dima Shoro. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. For Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest.
Thank you for staying with Africa Digest with Ms. Pamela Lezondi right here on Channel Africa. I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African time. The United Nations estimates that 2.8 million people still require humanitarian aid in Nepal. This is after an earthquake that struck three months ago. The United Nations Children's Fund, that is UNICEF, has warned that although the humanitarian situation has improved, hundreds of thousands of children still continue to face multiple risks. This is despite aid agencies racing to distribute critical, critically needed supplies. Jane Matebula reports. A new report by the International Organization for Migration, IOM, shows that internally displaced people or IDPs are consolidating in fewer larger sites. The third IOM displacement tracking matrix, the DTM, released this week, shows that the number of sites hosting over 50 households has dropped from 77 to 66. Many people seem to be now opting to return to the places where their homes once stood, typically within a 30-minute walk of the site. However, three months on, important service and security gaps remain. The 7.8 magnitude April 25 earthquake and a powerful aftershock on May 12 claimed the lives of over 8,800 people and destroyed more than 800,000 homes. The DTM reports that only 42% of the locations surveyed have designated site committees, one-third have no electricity, and lighting around latrines and public spaces is inadequate or non-existent in 84% of sites assessed. It also reveals that women in over a third, about 34% of the settlements, do not feel safe and just seven of the sites surveyed had designated safe social areas for women. The International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, the IFRC, also maintains that the devastating effects of the disaster continue for many people in their daily lives. The Red Cross continues to focus on providing shelter materials as well as food and essential non-food relief such as household items. Medical teams remain active and the need for longer-term psychological support to survivors is a priority. Distributions of cash grants have been integrated into the Red Cross response and millions of clean water have been provided to survivors. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Matebula in Johannesburg. In the time of 1721. Healthcare professionals and industry players from across South Africa have gathered in the country's coastal city of Cape Town for the 16th Annual Board of Healthcare Funders Conference. The four-day event, which concludes tomorrow, seeks to address some of the pertinent issues and solutions within the healthcare industry. The country's healthcare system has come under the spotlight at the meeting. Dr. Brian Ruff is the Chief Executive Officer for the Professional Provider Organization Services, and he says the system is facing many challenges. So the South African private healthcare system, unfortunately, doesn't have a structural plan. It's really, nor is there a government policy with a series of policy aims for the South African private sector. It's driven by chance in a way, and it's left entirely to unregulated market forces. And that's a big problem because healthcare is not a normal market, and in order for the market to work, you need a fairly sophisticated regulatory framework and you need to understand what the right kind of competition is in the marketplace. So what we've got in South Africa is a situation where instead of having complete healthcare systems, if you like, competing with each other and cooperating within themselves for the people that they serve, instead we've got individual doctors who should be working in teams all really working on their own. And the result of that over a couple of decades has really been that 
we don't have adequate community level services at all. And so everything that needs to be done that is, you know, really not anything above the most simple kind of problem gets referred into hospital to be solved. Do you think that South Africa's private health care system is in crisis? Yes, I think it's in crisis in a number of different ways. I think it's in crisis of affordability. So it should be producing far better value. In a way, it should be serving far more people and it should cost far less. And therefore, it's in a crisis of affordability. It's in a crisis of value. And all of that's a great pity, I guess. Now, there are some people who say that it's becoming increasingly important that we get both the private and the public sectors to work together for the national health insurance to be a success. How realistic a goal is this? I uh, presented in my presentation a roadmap that connects us from where we are now to a far more unified healthcare system. And that roadmap essentially said that recognizing that South Africa is a country of you know, remarkably different income levels with huge income inequality, it's not really realistic overnight to go from where we are now, which is essentially a private system serving maybe 16, 17% of the population and a, a public system, certainly for hospitalization, serving everybody else. The realistic road forward says actually there's a gap market. Uh, people are emerging out of poverty into the lower reaches of the middle class. When they get there, their choice is struggle to afford the very expensive insurance premiums in the private sector or go back into the public sector. So what we haven't evolved is a supply side, if you like, a healthcare system that matches the affordability of this emerging new middle class. In a way, that's the right, as has happened in many other markets, not just in healthcare, but in housing and education, in food production, etc. What we need is to understand what it takes to create this much more cost-effective but privately delivered services for this, what you can call the gap market. Mm. And I think if that starts happening, as it happened in other countries, over time, that gap market or that, that set of services has the potential, because it's cost-effective and because it's good quality, less and less rich people will buy, you know, way very expensive health care because they'll see that this is good value and that the state, let's say the NHI fund, would have an alternative, which is to buy services from this new model of healthcare delivery. But don't you think, Doctor, that the national insurance will deter some South Africans from seeking private health and medical care? The problem with the national health insurance as it's conceived at the moment is that even if you had a single fund, from where would it buy services right now? It would be stuck in the same problem that everybody else is, which is there's a very expensive private healthcare sector, very fragmented, you know, producing with all kinds of problems in the value that it produces, or there's the public sector, very disorganized, very patchy quality, very poor access. So that's its choice. So even if you had an NHR fund, you don't really have a cost-effective, reasonable quality system from which that NHR could buy. So no, NHR doesn't solve anything if you don't go and fix the, the way that you supply healthcare services to the country. What needs to be done, in your view, for the transformation to become more efficient, ensuring universal access to good quality care? Okay, so it clearly follows from what I'm saying 
that we need to understand what it takes to make this middle market or this gap market work. And I think the way to think about that is both on the demand side, in other words, how do you help people who can afford some kind of contribution to their healthcare costs to buy private health insurance? And that probably means subsidies, not subsidies that are big enough that they would constitute the whole premium, but as a contribution. And then it means on the supply side, it means a whole lot of regulation that includes whatever it takes to encourage the creation of new, more cost-effective healthcare delivery models to be created. At the moment, we don't even have a regulatory agency for the supply side of the private sector. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make that happen. That is Dr. Brian Ruff, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Professional Provider Organization Services, and who was talking to Elizabeth Litecha. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet, and satellite. From an African perspective, Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. And it's time for news headlines. Here's Asanda Mataunyan. Good evening. U.S. President Barack Obama wants to work to transform America's relationship with Africa. Lesotho Prime Minister Pakalita Musisidi appoints the country's former IEC Commissioner, Dr. Fago Likoti, as political advisor. And police in Bangladesh arrest eight suspected militants, including the chief of the outlawed Jamaat-ul-Mujahideen group. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asada Matsaunyan. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. And we're at 17.30 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance with Ms. Pomelele Zondi with you for the next half an hour now until 1800 hours Central African time. Remember that you can also find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa 1. It's Channel Africa Numerical 1 on Twitter. Now, new research has shown that malicious mobile apps on Google Play Store have spiked by nearly 400%. That's a staggering 388% increase from 2011 to 2013. The latest findings reveal that there were thousands of unauthorized apps and app stores that referenced high-level brands, and that 17% of these were already blacklisted as they had failed a virus scan or linked users to a known source of malware. With such a large percentage, of unsafe apps available. How does one safeguard their precious and extremely costly gadgets? Matthew Viren finds out. 
Mobile wallet technology has been around for more than a decade, but recently it seems as if the world is going a bit wallet crazy. According to various market research, the global mobile wallet market is projected to grow at an annual rate of 37% over the next few years. Now, Africa ranks second in the world in terms of mobile money usage per continent, but this is mainly thanks to the efforts of Kenyan mobile payment pioneers M-Pesa. Yet South Africa, with the most developed financial services industry on the continent, lags behind on mobile payment terms. A reason for this is definitely security. Even though making mobile transactions on the various app stores seems safe at a glance, one can never be too sure. Technology analyst Brendan Tom explains how hackers and fraudsters are catching unsuspecting victims. Basically, from a base point, when you got your mobile device, it's always a bit of a clever idea to set up like a lock, like a lock screen. Lots of people like their pin locks or their pattern locks, and with the new Samsung and iPhones, you can actually do a fingerprint lock as well. So that's, from a base level, is a good idea. Now, while mobile wallets do seem sketchy, the service can help users to be financially connected. In South Africa, transactions are accessible to those with or without bank accounts. Now, this has made huge strides in reaching the 7 million people in South Africa who, according to Vodacom's estimates, earn salaries but do not have their own bank accounts. In addition to mobile payments, a mobile phone subscriber can deposit value into their mobile account and then allow the recipient to turn that value back into cash. But how exactly does a fraudster target a service such as this? Tom says people are getting hoodwinked without even knowing it. The biggest form of fraud that people are doing is phishing. So they'll send you fictitious links to their websites where they will get your access details for your banking. And then they can also don't ever log into like public areas. So if you're going to log onto your banking on like a public network, people can actually have key loggers and malware to record what you're writing down and they'll save your details. Now, together with SIM swap and SIM cloning, they will actually clone your SIM card and access your banking details using those two methods. With mobile fraud on the increase around the world, safeguarding your mobile money and cash, for that matter, is just one aspect. Viruses, malicious apps and programs meant to slow down and ultimately deem your phone or tablet useless are the problems that mobile users have to contend with. Online payment service provider PayU is the country's leader in e-commerce payment and prides itself in bringing its client services that are safe and secure. The company's chief operations officer, Johan Decker, says that while it is difficult to spot fraudulent sites and apps, most mobile app stores have a top developer tab indicating that a specific developer is indeed trusted. The app stores are looking at the developer base and I'm giving them accreditation based on uh, their own investigations as well as their user feedback. And I think that's an important guideline to follow, number one. I think also what you need to do is visit the developer site, search on Facebook and other social communities, Twitter, get some feedback or what to do on feedback on developers, look at how long they've been in the market and basically try and work with trusted uh, app developers as far as you can. Now another way in which fraudsters are gaining information is through email providers such as Gmail or Outlook, where many users unknowingly save credentials and logins whereby another user can gain access to it, even when that specific device has been shut down. Decker says that people need to be more aware of what their mobile devices are capable of, adding that it is important that sensitive information stays in one's mind and not their mobile. I think it's important that you should not save sensitive data or your login details on the device that you're accessing the internet or accessing applications with. Similar to you know what the user used to and uh, been told by the bank, don't store your PIN in your purse. 
I think that's a, a very basic rule that the customers need to understand. And although there's a lot of sites with different passwords, you know, don't, just don't save them on the device. Keep them separate or um, try and keep them simple to remember, like a birthday phrase. Remote wiping is available on a number of devices today and it allows a user to delete all their sensitive content from their device, even if it has been stolen. While many people do know of the service, most of them don't know that it has to be activated to work. Also, be more tactful when dealing with passwords and access codes. One of the fundamentals in financial adage is not to provide banking details to anyone unless it is part of a registered transaction. And you must always ensure that apps downloaded from the various app stores are secure virus-free and valid. Making yourself aware of these often dismissed issues could save you and your 10,000 rand device from trouble. I'm Matthew Viren in Durban. The Worldwide Fund for Nature South Africa will be hosting its annual Living Planets Conference to be held on Thursday this week in Johannesburg at the Sun International Meslo Hotel in Santon. Augustine Markle, Executive Manager of Operations at the Worldwide Fund for Nature South Africa, says the meeting will be exploring actions required to address the current energy crisis and prevent a similar collapse in the provision of food and water under the theme How to Avert a Food, Energy and crisis in South Africa. The Living Planet Conference is a annual event that's held by the Worldwide Fund for Nature, WWF, South Africa. And this year, the purpose of the event is to inspire innovative solutions creation by addressing some of the big questions of the time. So whatever the big questions are in that year, WWF seeks through its work and through its programs to surface those questions and to bring together some of South Africa's thought leaders, decision makers, policy makers into a discussion. So it's not a debate and we're not trying to find congruence or anything. What we're trying to create at the conference is an exploration of solutions, how to address some of the serious big challenges for not only our country but our continent. So the big questions that we're asking at this year's conference is broken up into three sections. So we've got the energy discussion where the question being asked and focused on is how do we fund the transition to an energy system that is flexible, resilient, and adaptable? So this speaks to South Africa as an emerging economy and both the opportunity and the challenges that it faces in terms of securing a stable energy supply which will sustain South Africa's growth into the future sustainably and for a resilient South Africa, meaning that in light of the climate change challenges, so we've reached the point where we already accept that climate change is happening. In light of the climate change challenge, the issue is no longer about how to mitigate climate change. It's now about how do we build resilience. And our dependency on carbon-based energy sources is not a good solution anymore. And we really need to find innovative new ways of finding renewable energy sources. But with that said, it's great that we have all these wonderful ideas about energy solutions what we also need is to fund it. So this exploration is really around now how do we put our money where our mouth is and what are the options to fund that transition. The next question or area is about water. So the question there is what are the fundamentals that we need to change in rethinking water security for South Africa but also for Africa? So this is quite an important question because water production, any socio-ecological system or any country, water has got a very, very specific geographical footprint. So if water is being produced at a certain mountain catchment, certain mountainous areas, certain parts of the country, it's quite critical that we secure those water production areas because that's essentially where the water comes from. It's not engineered, it's not made, 
it's produced naturally, and we have to protect those water systems and water catchment systems so that we can sustain the water security of our country. What we're finding in South Africa is that there are quite a few direct threats to those water source areas due to other economic pressures, drivers and opportunities. And South Africa needs to really wake up and take a very, very sharp look at how it manages its water security going into the future in balance with other economic imperatives and, and opportunities. And then the final one, which is intricately linked to both of them, is, is around food. So the question in the food space is, who needs to take action to shift the food system in a way that secures equitable, sustainable provision of nutritious food for all? So an important part of that is food for all. So this doesn't talk to the rich or those who can afford it. This literally speaks to how do we provide justice and equity for food provision in a country. So the energy dilemma is spilling over into the food debate and into the food discussion because food pricing is determined by energy supply and determines the food pricing. Similarly, food production has a direct footprint, geographical footprint, and linked to water production. So if those water areas or water sources are threatened, then food production is directly threatened. The world is looking at renewable energy. Even companies now are converting themselves from fossil fuel to renewable energy. So what would you say is the continent's path of development with regards to energy, looking at the various energy sources? So in terms of the pathways of development, so I think what people often mistake is that they think that environmental organizations like WWF are completely left side or right side, and that we don't recognize the importance of economic development. It is fundamental that economic development takes place. We do not argue that. But what we do argue is that there's a different way, and we're challenging South African society and all African societies that there is a better way. We don't have to go down this path of unsustainable, exploitative, extractive use of natural resources. We can find a more sustainable way of doing this, and the energy example is the perfect example. So in the energy space, a transition must happen. We're not saying this is going to happen overnight. We're not saying that shut down all the coal power stations and nuclear stations and let's just stop this right now and start up all the renewable systems. I mean, that's just it's impractical and probable and doesn't help anybody at all. What does help everybody is if we can start putting a plan together and saying to recognize that our carbon-based dependencies actually doesn't serve us at all. It doesn't serve the future. So you can provide every economic argument or reason for why it does. But in the end, it's not sustainable. Those natural resources are going to run out and that's it. It's you cannot argue with that. Where the opportunity lies is the early investment. When that critical point is reached where the natural resources are threatened or the energy dependency and security becomes threatened because of its dependency on carbon-based energy supply, that the renewable energy sources would have reached a critical mass of power supply to immediately kick in to sustain economic growth, to mitigate risk, and then in the economy as a sustainable energy source uh, going forward. So that, in a nutshell, points to two basic things. It points to the critical need for innovative renewable energy source production. So we need a lot more innovation. We need entrepreneurs. We need academia applying their mind and thinking to how do we create this new energy sources uh, that are renewable and, and can sustain and feasible and viable that can sustain the economy. I mean, what are the big policy changes that must make? So that policy change isn't a political debate, but it's actually a positively constructed in to enable a, a great future for, for energy on the African continent. And now talking about food, who's uh, 
responsible or who is to take a decision on the provision of food. We see that the, on the African continent as well as uh, other areas of the globe, governments are leasing arable land, which is supposed to be using by the local communities for food production to multinational corporations to produce different products rather than those ones of enough food for people to be able to live and trade some of the surpluses. What's the WWF's comment on that? Look, so every country has its own challenges. Every country has its own development trajectory. In South Africa, and I can only speak for South Africa, we have WWF offices across Africa. But in South Africa, the challenge around food security and local livelihoods lies in the small grower space. So what's happening in South Africa is that we have commercial land owners, producers, and then we also have small-scale producers. And it's not only with agriculture, it's also in fisheries as well, and in some, not that much in forestry, but there's a growing field of it in forestry. So what this is about in South Africa is there is this growing empowerment of communal and local land ownership to be empowered to access markets. But again, those are policy decisions. It's not only around government and the ability to enable the environment for small growers to be empowered, bring their products to markets. That was Augustine Markle, Executive Manager of Operations at the Worldwide Fund for Nature in South Africa, talking to Wandi Lekalipa, 17.45 Central African Time. Here's Wissani Matebula with your economic news. Thanks, Pumilele. South African banking industry has warned government that a draft legislation that will enable the state to expropriate property without having to pay compensation at market prices will undermine the rights of owners and deter investment. The expropriation bill, now before Parliament, will give the state the right to seize property and pay the owner what has been termed just an equitable compensation. The government says the measure is necessary to address racial disparities in property ownership. The Banking Association of South Africa says the law will force banks to raise mortgage costs or reduce or withhold loans. And meanwhile, South Africa's Minister of Small Business Development, Lindy Wezulu, says she will come up with mechanisms that will ensure that there is coordination among all three tiers of government on programs which are geared towards supporting SMEs. Zulu was speaking at the media launch of the Global Entrepreneurship Congress to be hosted by South Africa in 2017. She says it would bring together entrepreneurs, investors, researchers and policymakers who continue to build different economies around the globe. You find one and the same people run to the same people or they double dip in different places and this only happens because there isn't that proper coordination. We are one government. We are one people. It's about strengthening our systems to talk to each other. And the example that we see here, the fact that we are sitting here, all of us, uh, national, provincial, and local, we are trying to move towards ensuring that that coordination and cooperation amongst ourselves as government is properly done. 
power cuts in northwestern Zambia have affected production at mines run by Canada's first quantum minerals and borrowed gold. Zambian power utility Zesco is limiting power supply to customers, including mining companies. This after water levels at its hydroelectric plants dropped due to doubt, Vusinkosi reports. Mining company First Quantum says it is unable to provide estimates on how long the power supply reduction would last or its impact on production. First Quantum Zambian smelter, which ramped up in February, is expected to produce over 300,000 tons of copper metal from around 1.2 million tons of concentrate a year when it reaches full operation. Zasco has hired independent power producers to procure more electricity by the end of 2015. Zambia is Africa's second biggest copper producer. Kenya Power has signed an agreement to purchase electricity from a 100-megawatt wind farm whose construction is expected to start later this year. The electricity will be from the 300 million US dollar Kipeto wind farm in the Rift Valley. It is expected to be built from November and take up to 24 months to finish. The power firm says the deal will last 20 years. Kenya relies heavily on renewable energy such as geothermal and hydropower. And BP's second quarter profit has slumped by nearly two-thirds from a year ago as it grapples with the lower crude prices. It took a huge $10.8 billion charge related to the 2010 Gulf of Mexico oil spill. In a sign that it was hunkering down for an extended period of lower oil prices, the British oil and gas company also cut its planned full-year capital spending again to below $20 billion. This comes after cutting it 13% earlier this year. BP has reached an $18.7 billion settlement with the U.S. government to resolve most claims from the oil spill. That's your economics news. Thank you very much, Fasani. It's time for a sports news. It's Fegile. In our sports update this hour, we're starting off with football news. The club versus country problem is refusing to go away in South African football and this time it's threatening the national under-23 team's chances of qualifying for the CAF under-23 championship, which will also act as qualifiers for the Rio Olympics in Brazil next year. And Owen da Gama, the under-23 coach, had selected 22 players, but clubs like Ajax Cape Town, Bidvis Vets, and Supersports United refused to release players, and Danish-based midfielder Lebohang Piri is also not coming after his club, Bronby, which refused to release him. There was a promise that the number of players in the camp could rise to 18, but the Gamma does not believe anything yet. Well, uh, the manager would know better on that one, but uh, I'll, only, I'll only believe it when I see it. You know, When I see the players, then I know. When I shake their hands, I mean, we sit, we sit in that foyer the whole night waiting for players. So we have our tea there, coffee there, just waiting for players to come in. So uh, when I shake hands, I'll know there's another one, there's another one. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think um, 
the message is loud and clear that this is our national team and we need help. We need to put together the best possible team. This is an opportunity to go to the eight nations. And then that's a springboard now for the... So I think the message is quite clear now that, uh, you know, it's a serious situation and... Um, we can't let our country down, you know. I understand there are uh, top eight games and friendly matches and so on, but, you know, we're just appealing to clubs that surely to release two or three players. I mean, if you've got 30 players to release two or three under 23 players, I don't think it's, a, it's the biggest uh, train smash. I'm sure teams can do that. And in netball news, the South African women's netball team, the Spa Proteas, were unable to improve on their Sunday's performance against the Silver Fence of New Zealand, losing the second match 67-28 at the Trust Arena in Auckland earlier today. The Proteas also lost the Test Series 2-0, but they will take a huge pride on how they played against the number two ranked team. Proteas shooters Lenise Botreter and Captain Marika Holzhausen were found wanting on most occasions as they missed numerous scoring opportunities. However, earlier in the match, South Africa lost their star midfielder and playmaker Aaron Berger to a finger injury and that move proved to be detrimental as it allowed the host more freedom as they dictated play. The Proteas will now jet off to Sydney to acclimatize ahead of the World Cup that is set to get underway next month. Uganda has finally named its 12-strong team set to do duty at the Netball World Cup. The tournament gets underway in Sydney, Australia from the 7th to the 16th of August. The She Cranes squad includes six players from the side that won the World Cup qualification ticket in Botswana last year. Long Brow, Lightning Shooter, Peace Proskovia, will captain the side. The England-based shooter says they are going to compete at the showpiece. First of all, in everything you do, you have to let the will of God be done. We as players, we are going to try our best to push because we are not going to participate, we are going to compete. Compete mean, means that we are all going to fight for one thing, that is the trophy. But above all, we always say, let the best team win and let the will of God be done. And in cricket news, tributes continue to pour in for former Proteus captain Clive Rice, who died in a Captain hospital this morning. He was 66 years old. He was diagnosed with brain tumor earlier this year. Janet Whitten reports. The 66-year-old Rice had gone to India earlier this year to receive controversial robotic radiation treatment at Bangalore's Healthcare Global Hospital. It had been believed the treatment went well. Rice was regarded as one of the best cricketers in the world, but almost his entire career coincided with South Africa's sporting isolation. But he was named the captain of South Africa for the first matches following the lifting of sporting sanctions, the three one-day internationals against India in 1991. Former South African Test cricketer and administrator of the United Cricket Board of South Africa, Dr. Ali Baha, says Rice was a truly great all-rounder in world cricket. Well, I had a long association with him. Uh, his first game for Transvaal uh, was in my Transvaal team in early January of t- 1971. And it became absolutely clear early on that he was a creator of immense talent possibilities. Uh, he became a great all-rounder, very competitive. Uh, had he, South Africa not been isolated from test cricket, I have no doubt that he would have excelled on the international fields and become one of the true, truly great all-rounders in, in world cricket. That's the Sport News this hour.
This is Africa Digest. It's 17.55 Central African Time. Let's recap our top stories. Burundi's newly elected parliament sits for the first time. The Board of Healthcare Funders Conference is underway in South Africa. In economics, a power cut in northwestern Zambia affects production at First Quantum Minerals and Barrick Gold. And in sports, the club versus country saga refuses to go away in South African football. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today. For myself, as Pumele Lezondi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Charles Moyo, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. For comments on the show, send us emails on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, we're on plus 2782332-5905, plus 2782332-5905. We leave you with Gwazban by Judith Sapuma and Rungo Madlingwazi. Oh, the wind's a little bit